If you got your Bibles with you tonight, let's open up to the book of Ephesians. We'll continue this trek through Ephesians 1. We'll read it in a minute, but before we do, I want to talk to you a little bit about life. How many people in here realize that you hold some type of position in your daily lives? Some people are husbands, some wives, some moms, some dads, some brothers, some sisters, etc. These are positions. Some are employees, some are employers, some are pastors, some teachers, some students, some evangelists. Whatever be the case, we all have a position in life. Regardless of how you split it, we all have one. We all have responsibilities and roles to fill in our individual lives. If I use myself, for example, I have a bunch of positions. I'm a father, a husband, a business owner, a boss, a teacher, a son, a brother, a grandson. With all the positions I have, I automatically have a ton of responsibilities that go along with them. I'm expected to do a lot of things with what I've been given. As a husband, I have a beautiful wife that needs to me to provide for her physically, emotionally, monetarily, and so on. As a father, I have five children that have a lot of those same needs. As a business owner, I have a responsibility to my customers to do a good job, to produce good work, and in a timely manner, that's what's expected of me. I also have the responsibilities to my employees to produce work for them so that they can feed their family and keep their keep their kids clothed and food on the table. They work for me. I have to provide work for them to keep them going. And as a son to my parents, I have the responsibility to honor them, to care for them, to provide for their needs as they grow old and as they get older. That's my job. That's what it means to honor your mother and your father. That's the fifth commandment. I have the, the responsibility to be a brother to you guys, to this church, to be a helping hand to the needy people within this church, a teacher at times, and also a listener more often than a teacher, to hear the, to hear the needs of other people, to hear the request of other people, to listen to other people when they teach me. I have that responsibility as a person. I have a lot of responsibilities based on the many positions that I hold, and I'm small, but I have a lot of responsibilities. And the same holds true for all of you. We all have various positions and responsibilities. Now, I didn't go out trying to gather a whole bunch of positions over the years. It just kind of happens to you as life develops, you know. You, you're born, and it kind of it kind of starts there. When I was born, I inherited the position of the son to my parents, a brother to my siblings, a grandson to my grandparents. And as life as a citizen in the nation that I live in, I have another position that was given to me at birth. I have a position there. As I got older, I started to work for my dad, and I was an employee to him. And I remember when I was little, I was I was probably about six years old when I started going to the job of my dad. My dad was a carpenter. He built houses for a living. He's a framer. I love my daddy. He's a good man. He taught me a world of things. He's the greatest man on this earth that I've ever known. He's my dad. But he took me to work with him when I was five or six years old, and I remember when he would he would take me. Um, I wasn't big enough to do anything, but because he loved me and he was going to raise me to be a man, he took me to work with him. Dad was a sawman most of the time on his job because sawman kind of could run things. He could cut all the wood and then kind of direct the whole house and the framing crew all at the same time. But Daddy, Daddy ran a saw most of the time. And I was a little kid, and he would tell me, I'd want to drive nails. Everybody was driving nails. They had hammers and nail aprons and all that stuff, and I wanted to drive nails. My dad would say, you just clean out from underneath these saw horses. And uh, I had to keep the blocks pulled out of the way so he didn't trip and fall and all that kind of stuff. That was my job. And while it was a little job and it was little to me and it wasn't as important to me as the man that was standing on top of the house driving the nails, it was what my dad started me to do, and it was important to him. And it was really important to him. But he would always tell me, he said, just make sure you do a good job, son. I'd leave four or five blocks underneath, and he'd scold me. He'd say, hey, there's 20 blocks underneath there. You don't pick up 16 of them and leave the other four laying there for me to trip on. He said, you do it. If you're going to do it, you do it right. You do it right every single time. And as I got older, my dad would tell me I'd be wanting to go fast like everybody else. I'd be driving nails, and the heck, I would drive four or five nails, and the next one I'd bend. You know, I'd drive it on in bent, and it'd be laid over on a piece of decking or something like that. And my dad would come around behind me. He said, pull that nail out, son. I said, it's all right. It's, you know, it ain't just bent just a little bit. He said, I said, pull it out. You take it out. He said, if you're going to do it, you do it right, and you make sure you do it right every single time. He always told me, he said, it's one thing to be fast. 
It's a whole other ball game to be good and fast. And he said it's more important to be good than it is to be fast. And he said when you get the first one right, when you get that good right, the speed will come. Just do it right every single time. Don't cut any corners. Always do that and do it right. And so I had a responsibility to my dad to do exactly what he asked me to do and do it right every time because he was expecting that of me. And I had a responsibility to, to do a good job. I got older. I gained the responsibility as a husband. Of course, children came along shortly after that, and I gained the responsibility of, as a father. And life went on and on and on. And over time, I had this huge portfolio of positions and responsibilities. Sometimes it's overwhelming. Anyone ever feel like that? It's just overwhelming? Overwhelmed with responsibilities? Well, I remember when, after I'd been working for my dad for a long time, I got up about 16 or 17 years old. I had kids early. I got married when I was five days into 17. Had a child on the way when I got married. And I remember working for my dad, and I remember one day it was lunchtime, and this same dad that taught me to do everything good and all that kind of stuff and to, to work hard. I was laying on a, we got done eating lunch one day. Dad always take his lunch. We'd, we'd bring a sandwich. We'd sit down for 15, 20 minutes and eat and go back to work. And it was hot. I'll never forget it. We were in Newton County down off of Oak Hill Road. And uh, I was burning up. I, I, it had to be nearly 100 degrees, middle of August. And uh, we was out there driving nails and sweat running everywhere you could think sweat would run and sawdust in every crack. Anyhow, I'm laying down on a piece of plywood, and we got done eating. I'm, I'm laying there, and I'm, I've done dozed off. And Dad said, all right, boy, let's go back to work. And uh, everybody's getting ready to get, go back to work. And I told him, I said, I don't want to go back to work. And this, my dad said, well, son, it's hard, but it's fair. You had a good home. You just wouldn't stay there. So off your butt and on your feet, out the shade and in the heat, let's go to work. And I will never forget it. He told me that, and, and uh, this was my dad. But that was my responsibility, and I owed a responsibility to my children and to my and to my wife. And, and I had to get up and go to work. And I, I remember when Kim and I first got married, and I'm not going to make this whole sermon about stories about me, but I want to tell you this one because it may be of some encouragement, especially to young people, maybe to older people, but especially to people like Benjamin, people starting off in life because it was tough. It was hard. I remember Kim and I first got married. I was I was 24 years old. I was I was working for myself then. I, I I owned my own business, and I was building a porch. Uh, it's about 12 foot off the ground. It was over on South End of Rockdale County. I won't never forget this. It was hot. It was so hot. I mean, I don't even know how hot it was, but it was hot. I, I believe it was hotter than hell that day. But anyhow, I'm building this porch, and and uh, we built the frame. I, I built the. Fr I'm by myself. I don't have no help now. Ten foot off the ground. I. I, I if anybody knows how construction works, I built the frame of the porch, put it up there, and I put the joist in it by myself, set it all up, and uh, I'd build my help. I'd make me a, I'd make me a tube for it, or a tube to six or something like that, a brace to hold up one end of it until I could get going. I'd been working on it. I had to get it done because I couldn't get a draw on the job if I didn't get done before Wednesday. I wouldn't get paid on Friday, and I had to have the money. It was that or not eat or not pay our bills. And I remember sitting on that porch. I'd got the band up and put the floor on it. All I had left to do was put the rail on it, but I was—I didn't have nail guns, I didn't have screw guns and things like that. I drove them by hand. I just couldn't afford those kind of things. And I remember sitting on that porch, and blisters, water blisters, had done come up on my hands, all over them, and popped and was running, you know. And I mean, just stinging inside of my hand. I was man, it hurt so bad to drive them nails. And I remember backing up against the wall of the porch, up against the house, and I remember crying, just sitting up there squalling like a two-year-old thinking, I was 24 years old now. I was crying. I said, I just can't do it. I can't do it no more. It just hurts too bad. I can't do it anymore. At that point in, in my life, at that point in my life, I don't know what it was, but something just told me, you know, get tough, be a man, come on, get up and do it. And I finished that porch that day. That was a turning point for me. You can do it if you want to do it. And uh, it was my position to take care of my wife and my children they didn't know I was out there crying on a job. I wouldn't have told them that for nothing in the world. But I was. I mean, I was beat down. I was hurting. I didn't, man, I didn't think I was going to make it. But I, but I backed up against that wall. I caught me another breath. And Yahweh pulled me on through it. And so be it. it. It changed me. And I don't believe there's nothing in the world can stop me if I set my mind to it now. But I tell you all that to tell you this. Sometimes life is just overwhelming. The positions that we have is overwhelming. Whether it be Matthew that, that's got to preach that's overwhelming sometimes. It was overwhelming to me this week knowing that I had to preach, and I didn't, 
I didn't necessarily even even want to in the sense not that I don't want to serve Yahweh, but man, it's it's a it is a laborious job to put a sermon together. Jerry knows, and anybody else has ever taught knows that. So it's overwhelming, and uh, everybody feels like that. And sometimes we feel like we just we give and we give and we give to other people, and all of our responsibilities due to our various positions. But sometimes I just feel give out. Give out. I've give and give and give to other people, and I just feel give out. And, man, this past Thursday was, was a prime example of that. I wanted to give it all up because I was give out. I would had one of the worst days that I'd had in probably 15 years, and I just I just wanted to throw the towel in. I just wanted to leave. McCord come by while I was doing that. Bless his heart. But uh, I was having I was having a bad day, man, and I wanted to pack up my stuff, move to Montana. I wanted to forget I knew anybody and forget anybody knew me and hope nobody ever asked anything of me again. Don't ever ask me to do anything for you. Don't ask me a question. I don't even want to answer a question. I was mentally exhausted. Sometimes we just feel like that, and it happens to all of us. You know, I hope it's not just me. I point all that out to remind you of one thing, one more position. Just like we all have positions in worldly life, we have another position, and that position is the position that we hold in Christ. Now, this position is greater, of greater importance than all the other positions that we hold in our everyday life, and it's rarely, rarely treated as such. I promise you, we'll get up and go to work without praying. We'll, we'll eat at night without praying. We, we won't talk to the Father all, all week long. We won't pray all week long, but we'll get up and do our mundane things and carry on our, our mundane lives. Won't speak to Yahweh at all, but when calamity hits, he's the first person we reach out to. You know, and we treat, we treat our position in Christ, who we are in Christ, we treat that as if it's nothing. And it is the greatest, the greatest position that we hold. And over the last couple months, we've been going over the first 14 verses in the first chapter of the book of Ephesians. It's been an exhilarating ride for me. I love the book of Ephesians. I've come to really love it the more I study it, and I hope you've enjoyed it so far as well. But whether or not you realize that those 14 verses that we've been going over, they've been giving us an explanation or an overview of our position in Christ. See, this is our most important position. There shouldn't be anything in life greater to a saint than, it, than the position that he holds in Christ, or that he holds in Yeshua for 12 for 12 previous verses in the book of Ephesians, Paul has been explaining to us how we are in Christ in order to explain the position to us, how we're in Christ. In verse 4, he says that we're chosen in Christ. In verse 7, he says that we're redeemed in Christ. In verse 11, he says that we're made an inheritance in Christ. This is an outline of our position. Brothers and sisters, do you know who you are? Do you know who you are? I remember not too long ago, I was having a little bit of problem with my youngest daughter, Tori. We were butting heads a little bit, and I was trying to tell her how she was supposed to act, and she didn't want to act right, and so I think we've got it worked out now. But I remember asking her, looking at her, so disappointed in her, and saying, Do you know who you are? Do you know who you are? You are my child. You're not just anybody's child. You're my child. And for that reason alone... Respect me, honor me, do what I say. You are mine. That's who you are. You're not just a. You're not somebody that's cast out on the street. You're not somebody that's left behind a dumpster. You're somebody. You're mine. And it's that way with Christ. We're somebody. We're His. Do you know who you are? Do you understand who you are in Him? Do you realize what's been done for you? Do you know the price that's been paid for you? Do you understand the forethought that went into the outcome of your destiny? There was something great planned right there, something great. You're not just anyone. I'm not just anyone. We're a child of the eternal king. You're the child of an eternal king. You're a child of the creator of the heavens and the earth, the creator of the universe. We're walking on something that he created. We're his child. We're his child. He thought enough to predestine you before the world began to send his son to die for you. Folks, that position has been played out, planned out. It's been paid for, and the blessing from it's all yours, even though you didn't do anything to receive it. You didn't do anything good, but it's all yours. So for 12 verses, Paul's been telling you who you are, explaining your position, how it come about. In verses 15 through 23, what we're going to get into today, he's going to pray for the for you 
regarding this position that you that you have. See, it's not enough to just have the position. There's a practice that goes along with the position. Nobody just has a position and not a practice. How can you have a position with nothing to go with it? It doesn't work. You can't. If you have a position, there has to be something that goes with that position or responsibility. In other words, if you're a plumber, you better know how to plumb. If you're a computer analyst, you better know something about computers. And if you're a parent, you better know a little bit about parenting. There's roles that are played out in every position. Well, if you're a saint, a chosen paid for, blood-bought, born-again saint, then you need to know what it is to be one. You need to know how to be one. You can't possibly hold a position without knowing how to practice that position. You just can't do that. And so if we're saints in here today, we need to know how to be saints. Paul's going to tell us this. In chapter 1, he tells you what your position is, and then he prays for you. In chapter 2, he tells you what your position is again. Chapter 3, he tells you what your position is again, and then he prays for you again. He does this over and over and over again. Ephesians chapter 1 through 3 tell us who we are. They explain our positions that we've been given. And chapters 4 through 6 tell us how to fill those positions. That's the whole book of Ephesians in a nutshell. That's what he's telling us how to do. So let's dig in a little bit. Let's, uh, let's start in verse 15. I'm going to read through 23. We won't cover all 23 verses. However, I want to I want to read it for context. In verses 15, Ephesians chapter 1, starting in verse 15, it says, This is why, since I heard about your faith in the Lord Yeshua and your love for all the saints, I never stop giving thanks for you as I remember you in my prayers. I pray that the mighty one of our Lord, Yeshua the Messiah, the glorious Father, would give you a spirit of wisdom and revelation in the knowledge of him. I pray that the eyes of your heart may be enlightened so you may know what is the hope of your calling. What are the glorious riches of his inheritance among the saints? And what is the immeasurable greatness of his power to us who believe according to the working of his vast strength? He demonstrated this power in the Messiah by raising him from the dead and seating him at his right hand in the heavens. Far above every ruler and authority, power and dominion, and every title given, not only in this age, but also in the one to come. And he put everything under his feet and appointed him as head over everything for the church, which is his body, the fullness of the one who fills all things in every way. Verses 15 through 19, they're a prayer. Paul's praying for the saints that he's just explained their position to in the previous verses. Right before he starts his prayer in verse 15, he says this, this is why. In other words, for this reason. What is why? What does Paul say this is why for? Why does he say that? The reason is because the position he just explained, because they are the saints who are in the Messiah. All these people that he's talked about in verses 3 through 14, they're the saints in the Messiah. Okay, And this is the position that they hold. Paul is saying because you are the saints, because you hold this position in the Messiah, and then he goes on. This is why... Since I heard about your faith in the Lord Yeshua and your love for all the saints. Since he heard what? About their works? No. About their baptism? No, don't say that. About their own strength? Don't say that. Don't say anything about their genealogy. It doesn't say anything about any of that stuff. He says this. Since I heard about your faith. When I heard about your faith in Yeshua and your love for all the saints. That's what Paul says because of their position. And because he heard about their faith and love, he goes on to say he never stopped giving thanks and praying for them. Be sure you notice, Paul doesn't mention a list of works along with faith in Christ. We have works, okay? We have works, but not by means of justification. That is what we call sanctification, two completely different things. Works are evident in the life of every single believer. They always will be. They'll be there. They'll be there. However, it's not a means of justification. It's not a means at all. It isn't because he saw all their works. No, it's not because of their faith. He continually gives he continually gives thanks and praise for this praise for the saints because of their faith in Christ and their love for one another. Remember verse thirteen last time I talked? In him you also, when you heard the word of truth, the gospel of your salvation, and him when you believed, when you believed, that's faith, guys. And him, when you believe, you were sealed with the promised Holy Spirit. At the time of belief, you were sealed with the promised Holy Spirit. They believed, they had great faith. And this is why Paul never stops giving thanks and remembering them in his prayers. That's verse six, verse 16. Paul realizes their position 
And they are the true saints of Yahweh through Yeshua. And the evidence of it is in their faith and their love for one another. That's their evidence. as their works. See, their faith in Christ produces a unity between other brothers or other believers. And this is why the love for the other saints is evident. Their love for the other saints didn't produce their faith. No. Rather, it's the other way around. Their faith produced their love for the brethren. If we're unified in one faith, we have a lot in common with our brothers and sisters. We share a common bond, and that bond creates mutual feelings and love between multiple parties. Remember what 1 John chapter 2, and verse 9 through 11 says? It says, The one who says he's in the light but hates his brother, he's in the darkness until now. The one who loves his brother remains in the light, and there's no cause for stumbling in him. But the one who hates his brother is in the darkness. He walks in the darkness, and he doesn't know where he's going because the darkness has blinded his eyes. Brothers and sisters, loving your neighbor as yourself is the second greatest commandment in the whole Bible. It's the second greatest commandment in the whole Bible. Leviticus chapter 19 and verse 18. And according to the Messiah in Mark chapter 12 and verse 31, he names it as the second greatest commandment. And according to Galatians chapter 5 and verse 14, it says the whole entire law, the entire law is fulfilled in one statement. Love your neighbors yourself. So Paul's seeing that right here. He has seen that they're genuine saints because of their faith and because of their love for one another. And he says, because of this, because of this, because I know that you're true saints, I remember you in my prayers. I remember you in your prayers. I pray for you often. And then he st- Then he starts his prayer in verse 17. Let's read that again. In verse 17 it says this, I pray that the mighty one of our Lord, Yeshua, the Christ, the glorious Father, would give you a spirit of wisdom and a revelation and the knowledge of him. I pray that the eyes of your heart may be enlightened so you may know what is the hope of his calling. What are the glorious riches of his inheritance among the saints? Stop right there. That's a powerful prayer. Super powerful prayer. I want to point out that the first thing he mentions when he tells us what he what he prays is who he prays to. This is important. A while back we went over verse two in this in the first chapter of Ephesians, and I decided not to deal with the person of Christ in relation to his father so as not to cause any controversy at that time. By the way, I'm gonna deal with it tonight and I'm still not trying to cause any controversy. Okay? I'm not I'm not trying I'm not trying to cause any controversy between anybody. However, tonight I feel like we have to talk about it. When we teach expositionally, we have to teach the Bible for what it says. And tonight this verse has come up and we have to deal with it. This is the second time that Paul has differentiated between the Father and his Son, and I feel it should be addressed and it should be explained. So verse 17 again says this, I pray that the mighty the I'm going to use what the Bible says. I pray that the God, or the Mighty One, of our Lord Yeshua the Christ, the Glorious Father, would give you a spirit of wisdom. Right away, we should see that there are three parties involved in this phrase. Number one is is God, or the Mighty One, Yahweh, right? Paul prays that the God, the one entity here is mentioned here in singular form. Then he says the God of our Lord Who is the hour? Well, it's the saints right here in Ephesians, or it's us. It's the saints that Paul's praying for, as well as you and I that are sitting in the congregations. So you've got Yahweh to start with, and then you've got the saints. That's the first two entities. Then the verse says, the God of our Lord, Yeshua. There's our third party. We have Yahweh, we have the saints, and we have Yeshua. Three separate parties. Three completely different parties. But be sure to notice how carefully Paul words this. He says, Yeshua's God, which is the glorious Father. He follows that up with the glorious Father. Yeshua's God, which is the glorious Father. So if we're confused by who all is in view here, he lays it out. He says, Yeshua's God is the glorious Father. Now, Christ is our Lord, but this verse proves that our Lord also has a Lord, our God, right? 1 Corinthians chapter 11, verse 3 sums it up for us. You don't have to turn there. I'm going to read it for you. But it says, The head of every woman is man. The head of every man is Christ. And the head of Christ is Yahweh. Paul confirms this view again here in Ephesians with all three parties mentioned. Man, Christ, and Yahweh. The title of glorious father cannot, cannot be given to the Son, to our Lord, 
because he's not the father, but rather he's the only begotten son. He's the monogenes. He's the only begotten son. Yahweh is never, ever, ever called the only begotten son. Never. Not one time in this book is he called the only begotten son. Never. And never is Yeshua called the father. Now, if I asked everyone in here, if the son is the father, you would have to say no or either change the meanings of words in all languages. You just have to flip them on their head. That's what you would have to do. Paul clearly identifies Yeshua as his Lord and Yeshua's Lord as Yahweh. Let me ask you something. When we pray, who do we pray to? The Father or the Son? Well, Paul's praying to the Father. He's asking the Father to do something for him in prayer. To answer the question, just ask yourself who the Son prayed to. At the cross or the torture state, he's dying. Last words on the torture stake, who does he pray to? His father. He prays to Yahweh. Before he died in the Garden of Gethsemane, on the night he was betrayed in the Garden of Gethsemane, before he was, he's asking his father something. He says, Father, let this cup pass from me. Who's he praying to? Yahweh. Yahweh. Every time you see a prayer in the Bible, the prayer is always directed to the Father. When he taught the disciples how to pray, what did he say? Our Father who art in heaven. This is Yeshua praying, our Father who art in heaven. Hallowed be thy name. Hallowed be thy name. Do you see that? Paul says that Yahweh, the glorious Father, is the God of Christ, who is our Lord, our Lord. That automatically implies that Christ, who is our Lord above us, also has a Lord above him, which is Yahweh. I think it's Psalms chapter 110, 110. He said, Yahweh saith unto my Lord, Sit here at my right hand until I make thine enemies a footstool. Two lords. Two lords. You got Yahweh and then you got Adonai, a lesser Lord. Christ is not God. Christ has a God. Instead, Christ is the Lord that Yahweh the Father crucified. He raised him from the dead. He set him at his right hand and he has given him to us as our Lord. Two distinct beings, not the same. Christ is the head of man, but Yahweh is the head of Christ. I felt compelled to point out the distinction and I hope you see it. So the rest of the verse, now that we know who Paul's praying to, Yahweh the glorious Father, we find out what he's requesting of the Father. That the Father would give you a spirit of wisdom and revelation in the knowledge of him. A spirit of wisdom. Now back in verse 13, Paul said, when you believed, you were sealed with the promised Holy Spirit, right? At the time that you believed, you were sealed with the promised Holy Spirit. So now he's praying that they would get a spirit of wisdom to understand who he is. The spirit of wisdom... It's not the Holy Spirit that they were sealed with. He's not praying that they get a second dose of it. They've already got the Holy Spirit. These saints have already been sealed with the Holy Spirit. This, this is a different one. This is the Greek word pneuma, and it can be translated many different ways. But right here, I believe it's talking about an attitude or disposition that governs the soul of a man. Think about it. When Yeshua was speaking on the mount, and he says, Blessed are the poor in what? Spirit. Well, he wasn't talking about the Holy Spirit. Blessed isn't the man in the poor and Holy Spirit. That's not good. You know, blessed is the man that would be rich in Holy Spirit, right? He's talking about an attitude. Yeshua was talking about a humble attitude. Blessed are those who are poor with humble attitude. That is the spirit we should have. I talked about that earlier. I got a problem with pride. I know that I got a problem with pride. I need to I need to work on that. Yeshua says this one of the attitudes. Hey, blessed are those who are poor in spirit. Break yourself, man. But Paul's praying for a spirit of wisdom. In other words, an attitude of wisdom, a disposition of wisdom that governs the soul, an attitude that desires the knowledge. And then the last part of verse 17 says this, and a revelation in the knowledge of him. He prays that they would get a revelation in the knowledge of him. Wisdom and revelation in the knowledge of who Christ is, our inheritance. Revelation of the knowledge of our position and our inheritance through Christ. And oh, how important it is to have this knowledge. That's why it's so important to make the controversial point that Christ is not God. I'm not trying to step on anybody's toes. I know there's a lot of mixed un- mixed understandings of, of, of how Christ is in here, and I'm not, I'm not bashing anybody. But it is important, and it's extremely important that you understand this right, especially in this book. This book will, will be full of it. If we don't know who Yahweh is, the glorious Father, and who Yeshua is, the means of salvation that the Father gives, that we can... We can never understand our position and our inheritance through the person of Christ. It's so important. I hope that everyone sees what I'm trying to say because I, 
we won't have any choice but to get further and further and deeper and deeper in this because as we continue to go through the book of Ephesians, we're going to find constant references of the Son, Yeshua, our Messiah, as well as Yahweh, the glorious Father, and we'll have to be able to distinguish the difference between them. So I pray today, the same as Paul, that Yahweh gives us all a spirit of wisdom and revelation in the knowledge of Him. All right. I'll leave that alone now. I'm really done with this time. Let's go on to verse 18. Verse 18 says, I pray that the eyes of your heart may be enlightened so you may know what is the hope of his calling, what are the glorious riches of his inheritance among the saints. Paul continues his prayer here, and he asks that the eyes of your heart be enlightened to know these things. Three things. Number one, he wants your eyes to be enlightened to know the hope of his calling. Number two, he wants your eyes to be enlightened to know the glorious riches of his inheritance. And number three, he wants your eyes to be open and your eyes to be enlightened to understand the immeasurable greatness of his power. We're going to get more in detail about these three things Paul prays for the next time I teach. But for now, I just want to center in on what it means to have the eyes of your heart enlightened. What in the world? What in the world? I'm thinking, my heart don't have eyes. That's what I've been thinking the whole time. What are you talking about, eyes of your heart? My heart don't have eyes. Your eyes, your heart don't have eyes. My mom said she had eyes in the back of her head, but she wasn't talking about her heart. So uh, my heart don't have eyes. And, of course, I get the spiritual insight here. I'm not, I'm not dumb. Basically, he's, he's just praying that we would be made to understand these things, these three things that he's listed. I'm sure most of you pick up on that, that the eyes of your heart may be enlightened. simply means that you'll understand what he's saying. But I want to explain something that I found interesting while I was studying this. Like I said, my heart doesn't have eyes, so it made me study. So why does Paul use the heart specifically here when referring to receiving insight or understanding? Why not the mind? When we speak today, we would say we pray that our mind would be open, right? We wouldn't say we pray that our heart would be open. We pray that our mind would be open. Well, actually, if you read this verse in the KJV, it says this. It says, the eyes of your understanding instead of the eyes of your heart. But the Greek literally says the eyes of your heart being enlightened. If we use the KJV to translate the word understanding, we get the Greek word kardios, from which we get our English word cardiac. Right? Cardiac relates to the heart, right? Everybody, everybody understands that. So Paul's referencing the, the heart as the organ symbolic for understanding. Now, again, in our Western culture, we might have a problem with that. In our culture, we have designated the heart as a reference to our emotions, usually love, right? All the songs you sing about will reference the heart. I think Billy Ray Cyrus made one famous one time, Don't Tell My Heart, My Achy Breaky Heart. You remember that? All right. That was, uh, that was his, his play on words there for, for the heart and love. When we tell our wives we love them, we say, I love you with all my heart. Or you might say that I've got it. In, I've got it inscribed in my in my wedding band. My wife put all my heart on there on the inside of it. So maybe it's just something we say to each other. But anyway, you might tell them you love them with all your heart. For crying out loud, our culture practices a pagan holiday called Valentine's Day, and its main symbol is the heart, and it's meant to symbolize love or strong feelings towards someone. However, that's not the ancient cultures. That's not the way they viewed the heart. The ancients didn't view the heart that way. The Hebrew people spoke about feelings, not using the heart as the organ to symbolize it, but rather they would use the Greek word splanchnon, which translated bowels in the English. The organ used to symbolize feeling or love or emotions in the biblical culture was bowels. You might tell your wife, I love you with all my bowels. You might not. It would probably be wise if you might not. Now you see why I thought this was interesting. That doesn't sound right to us at all today. We just we don't talk like that. And you don't look at your wife and kids and say, hey, I love you with all my bowels. At least you probably better not. That sounds completely absurd and foreign to us, right? But the, the Bible's full of it. The Bibles are organ Bibles are the organ associated with feelings. That's just that's just the way it's laid out. Let me give you a few examples so you don't think I'm just making this up. These are all from the KJV. I use it because it's a little bit more poetic language, and, of course, they use the word bowels, and the, most of your modern translations have translated this into feelings and things like that. But um, 
Song of Solomon, chapter 5 and verse 4, it says this, My beloved put in his hand by the hole of the door, and my bowels were moved for him. In other words, she was overwhelmed with feeling when she seen his hand come through the door and he was fixing to come into her room. So her bowels were moved for him. Lamentations, chapter 2 and verse 11, Jeremiah's weeping over the destruction of Jerusalem, and he says, My eyes are worn out from weeping, and I am churning within. He is sick to his stomach over the destruction. Right, First John chapter 3 and verse 17, he says, If you see someone in need, how could you shut up the what bowels of your compassion? It doesn't say, how can you turn your heart from him? It says, how can you turn your bowels from him? How could you shut up your bowels of compassion when you see a man in need? Genesis 43 and verse 30, it says, it's, this is a story of Joseph in Egypt, and when he sees his long-lost brother, the Bible says in most versions, he was overcome with emotion and was about to weep. But the KJV renders it like this. His bowels did yearn upon his brother, and he sought where to weep. Same thing in First Kings chapter three and verse twenty six. The story of the two women that brought the y'all remember the two women that brought the baby there, and uh, one of them's child had died, and they argued over who the baby was. And remember what Solomon said. And he said, "I'm smarter than both of y'all. Cut that baby in half. We're just sharing between the two of you. You know, that's I guess that was his thought there. But the verse the HCSB says this: the woman felt great compassion for her son. And the NASB says that she was deeply stirred over her son, but the KJV says this, her bowels yearned upon her son. I could go on and on and on and on. There's many, many examples of bowels being used this way throughout the Bible. But basically, I'm just trying to point out the fact that that's where our feelings get us at, in our guts, not in our heart. When you get nervous, what happens? Stomach hurts. Stomach hurts. So the organ of feeling is the stomach, not the heart, the way we portray it today. Our final example of this led me to another nugget that I discovered while I was studying this. I think this is super cool. It was huge to me because I don't get a lot of nuggets. You know what I mean? I don't get a lot of them. When I get one of them, I'm thankful to have it, you know. So um, do this. Turn, take your Bibles and turn, to me to first, turn with me to 1 Timothy chapter 5. I'm going to try to explain something to you, and I think, you, I think you'll appreciate it. I've never heard this before. I figured this out on my own, so I'm really excited about that. That doesn't happen much. So so I figured this out on my own. I, I thought that was cool. But um, Let's look at verses 19. We're going to read through 25. It says this. It says, Don't accept an accusation against an elder unless it is supported by two or three witnesses. Publicly rebuke those who sin so that the rest will also be afraid. I solemnly charge you before Yahweh and Christ Yeshua and the elect angels to observe these things without prejudice, doing nothing out of favoritism. Don't be too quick to lay hands on anyone, and don't share in the sins of others. Keep yourself pure. Don't continue drinking only water, but use a little wine because of your stomach and your frequent illnesses. Some people's sins are evident, going before them to judgment, but the sins of others follow them. Likewise, good works are obvious, and those that are obvious cannot remain hidden. If you haven't ever read the book of 1 Timothy, I encourage you to do so. But I'll just give you an overview on what's going on right here just so that you can stay in the loop. Paul's writing a letter right here to Timothy to tell him how to set up his church. He starts in chapter 1 explaining how people have misused the law, but he tells them not to be afraid of these people, just continue on in the faith. Then in chapter 2 he tells them to continue in prayer for these knuckleheads that are causing all the problems. Then in chapter 3, he tells, him, he tells Timothy how to determine leaders for the church and the qualification for elders and headships and things like that and what, what has to be met. In chapter 4, he warns Timothy of demonic influence, and he continues to instruct him on how to run his ministry. And he does this all the way up into chapter 5. And at the end of chapter 5, he tells Timothy, he says, not to fall into the people's sin, but to stay steadfast in the ministry. So to say the least, Timothy's distraught, okay? He's stressed out over all the problems that he's having, and he's having all kind of complications here. Everything's going wrong. Timothy's trying to build a church, and people are doing everything everything backwards in the way it's supposed to be done or the way that Timothy's instructing them to do it. Then Paul tells him in verse 19, he says, Don't accept an accusation against an elder. I'm going to point up two points right here. Number one, when he says don't accept an accusation against an elder, it also says this. A lot of people say that Paul is anti-law. 
But listen to what Paul says. It says, unless it is supported by two or three witnesses. All right? So we've got problems with people making accusations against elder, elders, and Paul tells Timothy, he says, do not accept those accusations unless it's given by two or three witnesses. Right? All right, and then verse 20, it says, Publi- publicly rebuke those in sin. Matthew taught on that not too long ago. Verse 21, it says, don't judge with a prejudice. This is also anti-law Paul, so people say. I think that's Old Testament. Verse 22 says, don't be too quick to lay on hands, lay hands on anyone. By the way, he's not talking about laying hands on in prayer right here. He's just told Timothy in chapter 2, pray for everybody. He's not saying now in chapter 5, don't lay hands on anyone in the sense of prayer. What he's saying is, Timothy, keep your hands off those people. Don't throw them out of the synagogues. Don't, don't hurt anybody. Don't lay hands on them in that way. And then he just, and then in verse 23, out of nowhere, Paul comes out with this and he tells Timothy, not to just drink water, but drink wine also because of your stomach and frequent illnesses. Why? Why? Why does he say that? It doesn't make any sense. Why does Paul tell Timothy to just to drink wine? The whole context doesn't have anything to do with wine. It doesn't have anything to do with anybody being sick. The whole context is about Timothy being stressed out because the elders of the church are not doing what they're supposed to do. The people of the church are not doing what they're supposed to do. Everybody's causing riffraff and trouble around there. And he's trying to encourage Timothy to go on, keep the faith, stay strong, pray for those. Don't lay hands on anybody. Don't follow into their sin. But Timothy, drink a little wine with your water. Why? Why does he tell him that? The context just doesn't have anything to do with it. It's just a lot of drama, a lot of problems going on, but no one's sick. There's no mention of Timothy being sick. He's not got a bad batch of water. We're not purifying it with wine. You know what I mean? It doesn't make any sense unless, unless this, you understand that the stomach being the organ symbolic of feelings. In other words, it seems to me that Timothy is extremely stressed out with all the junk he's having to deal with due to all the people not acting right. And I guess we could say he's sick at his stomach. Now, I know that sounds short right there, but I'm just going to explain it, so stay with me. What does Paul suggest? He says, drink a little wine, Timothy. Drink a little wine. Come on down to the bar, Timothy. Drink a little wine. No, he don't say anything about going to the bar. That was a joke. That was a joke. He don't say anything about going to the bar. But he does tell Timothy, he says, drink a little bit of wine with your water. Amen. Proverbs 31.6 says this. Listen to this. Give beer to one who is dying. For all you anti-alcohol people. Give beer to one who is dying and wine to one whose life is bitter. Let him drink so that he can forget his poverty and remember his trouble. No more. Sounds to me like Paul's been reading Proverbs. He offers Timothy the perfect antidote for his problem. See, Timothy's not sick. Timothy's not sick. Timothy's sick in his stomach because of the stress. That's what's wrong with Timothy. And Paul says, hey, drink a little wine with your water. See, that fits contextually. But if we just throw Timothy getting the flu in here right in the middle of him dealing with a bunch of nonsense in a church, well, we just put something in there just to put it in there. And, hey, I was one of those people that would use this verse to teach it was okay to drink alcohol. I think you can still use this verse to teach it was okay to drink alcohol, but that's not the insight here. I mean, that's not the reason for it. He prescribes the perfect antidote for Timothy's stress. Have some wine, Timothy. See, Timothy's emotions are associated with his stomach. I believe that Timothy's stress level so high that his stomach hurts because that's where the emotions are felt at. In our bowels, according to the KJV, not our hearts, according to the way we think today. And we can feel pain in our hearts, but if we do, we better find a hospital because wine's not going to help you in that case. Now, you may be thinking about the end of verse 23 in, in 1 Timothy where it says, use wine because of your stomach. And then it says, he tells Timothy, use wine because of your stomach and because of your frequent illnesses. And you might be thinking, no, it's talking about sickness because it says illnesses. But the word illnesses here can be translated weakness according to the context. KJV renders the word as infirmities, which can mean physical illnesses, but can also be defined as mental weakness or weakness in general or affliction. So according to the context and all that I've summed up for you, 
that's going on in the book of First Timothy, I think it's quite safe to conclude that he's telling him to use wine because of his stomach, because of all that stress and all his illness, meaning his mental weakness or affliction due to the, all the stress from the problems he's having. It's just like in, in James chapter 5 and verse 14. I taught on this some time back, and if you hadn't listened to the sermon, you might listen to it. It may give you a whole new mindset on praying for the sick. It's just like in, in James chapter 5 and verse 14 where James says, If someone's sick, let him call for the elders of the church. The word sick there should be translated weak. He's not talking about a man that's sick in his body. He's talking about a man that's weak in his faith. He says, if you're weak in the faith, call for the elders of the church. Let them pray over you to restore you. Right here, the same exact word is used in 1 Timothy. It's used in a plural in, in plural form simply because it says weaknesses or illnesses here. It's a it's a plural, plural use of the of the verb. However, it's not or the noun. However, it's not. It doesn't have to be translated that way. It can be tr translated weakness. Now let's get back to Ephesians chapter 1. I just told you all that to explain to you that, that the stomach is the organ that symbolizes feelings in the scriptural culture, not the heart like we think in our modern culture today. And I told you that in an effort to help you understand why Paul prays that the eyes of the heart might be enlightened. It's because instead of the heart symbolizing feelings, we just discovered that the Bible is usually symbolize feelings in the biblical culture. Instead, the heart in biblical culture usually symbolizes thinking or insight or understanding. The heart is the thinking organ. Now here are a few examples to go along with my line of thinking. Proverbs chapter 23 and verse 7 says this. It says, For as he thinketh in his heart, so he is. Luke 6.45 says, Out of the abundance of the heart the mouth speaketh. Proverbs 18.15 says, The heart of the prudent getteth knowledge. Proverbs 2.10 says, Wisdom entereth into thine heart, and knowledge is pleasant unto thy soul. See, the organ of comprehension is the heart, as opposed to the heart being for emotions. That's for the stomach. Check this out. Here's one more example of where the two are distinguished separate from each other. Look at 2 Corinthians chapter 6 and verses 11 through 13. We have spoken openly to you, Corinthians. Our heart has been open wide. Notice the heart symbolizes the mind. They have spoken openly or wisely. You are not limited by us because they shared openly. You're not limited by us. But you are limited by your own afflictions. The KJV says you are limited in your bowels. See, the Corinthians can't hear and understand in their hearts because, they're, because their mo emotions are in the way. That is very, very common in everybody's life. Me, anybody, it doesn't matter who it is. When your emotions raise up, you can't hear and think clearly because something you've already got inside of you. You just cannot hear it. See, the Corinthians can't hear and understand in their hearts because, because their emotions are in the way. Their stomachs have restricted their heart from understanding what Paul has to say. See, whenever you put your feelings in front of Yahweh's truth, you interpret the truth in light of your emotions. And when your emotions run wild, you can't hear the truth. Your stomach gets in the way of your heart's understanding. The heart of understanding must be open to understand Yahweh. I point this out so when we read Ephesians 1.18, you can see it means exactly what it says. Paul is praying that the eyes of your heart may be enlightened, that your stomach's feelings don't block up or get in the way of what your heart's knowledge will find in those three things it says at the end, the end of the verse. The three things that it says that he wants us to understand is this. Don't let, don't let your emotions get in the way. Think openly right here, but he wants you to understand what is the hope of his calling. He wants you to understand the glorious, of his, the glorious riches of his inheritance, and he also wants you to understand the immeasurable greatness of his power to us who believe according to the working of his vast strength. And we'll get into those three things the next time I teach. So in closing, let me say this. I started out this sermon talking about positions. Remember husbands, wives, parents, children, teachers, students, etc. Remember our most important position is who we are in Christ. That's the most important thing. I want you to be thinking about your position in Christ over the next couple of weeks until I teach again. 
Think about your election. Think about your redemption. And think about the inheritance that you have in Christ. That all explains our position in Him. All of it. Brothers and sisters, you have to understand your position in Christ before you'll ever understand the rest of Paul's prayer. But also the rest of the entire book of Ephesians. You don't know who you are. You can't practice who you are. You've got to know who you are first. So think about your position. and Think about Paul's prayer. Use it as a model for your prayer. You pray for the next two or three weeks. You can't think of how to pray. Pray like he prayed. Pray that Yahweh give you an open mind to receive things that are good. Give you an open mind to receive all the things that Paul's praying for right here. We need to receive a spirit of wisdom. All of us do. We should all pray that we receive a spirit of wisdom so that we can understand when somebody talks. Gets pride out of the way, like I, I was talking about earlier. It's not about what you know. It's about what somebody else knows. Man, when I started this, uh, when I started this sermon, I had no idea about that stuff in First Timothy. But, hey, through time, study, learn something. Learn something. We can learn from everybody and anybody like that. I learned a lot of things. I listen to a lot of pastors when I'm preparing my sermon, a lot of pastors that have gone before me and taught these messages and things like that. I listen to them. I'm, I'm encouraged by them. I don't agree with all of them. Most of them I don't agree with at all, but I, but I still listen because I think it's important to get different views and different angles when I, before, I, before I teach. But, man, let's pray. Let's pray that. Pray that, that Yahweh gives us a spirit of understanding, to understand his knowledge, and that he'll open the eyes of our heart that we'll receive what he has for us. Yahweh, Father, we thank you so very much. I thank you for your love and your compassion. Father, I thank you for your gentleness with us. Father, we're like, uh, we're like clay in the palm of your hands. And, Father, you can make us whatever you want to make us. And uh, there's not really anything we can do about it. So, Father, I'm thankful that you're so gentle with us. We don't, we don't deserve to stand before you. Father, we're not, we're not righteous. We're not righteous only by the blood of your own Son. That's the only way we're righteous. And so, Father, I just lift him up today. I thank you so much for him. I'm, I'm thankful for all that he's done for us and, and your perfect plan in sending him. Father, we give you praise for all that. I pray that you'll just open our eyes. Let us see, Father. Let us continue studying and praying and, and uh, fasting when we can, Father. Let us live for you. Let us remember our position in Christ and, and uh, start to practice. And let us live it, live it out, walking walk in the way that your son walked. Father, we give you all the glory today. We thank you for your, your new moon day. We ask all these things in your holy son's name.